Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Good morning, C4 Church. I'm so glad you're here this morning. Good morning to you, our online audience, wherever you might be joining us today from. Some of you in England are celebrating a big day today, the Queen's Jubilee, so have some lunch for us right now. And uh, we're glad you're here, and for you who are on shift work, uh, you who are at your cottages or traveling, who are part of our community, we want to warmly welcome you uh, this morning, because you can't meet with us today physically. Well, I think I can sort of declare summer is almost here. Wouldn't you agree? We're close. We're close. We thought we had it, and then the storm came. Uh, One thing that I, I love about living in southern Ontario, and for you watching overseas or from the States, you may not understand this, just north of us here... Uh, there are thousands of lakes, and it's, it's a gem. It's a gift, actually, that we have in this, in this province. And one thing I love in the middle of summer to do is go north and just at dusk uh, set a big fire. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's beautiful, the smell, the crack. Well, we hate the smoke in our face. We always have to move, right? And the mosquitoes. But just the sense of that, that huge fire. You can do s'mores or hot dogs or, or whatever. But it, it's that... It's that moment, and it's really Canadian, right? If, if the lake is still and suddenly a loon starts singing, right? That's the Canadian moment. And uh, it, it, it typifies a, a beautiful summer night. Now, it's interesting if you've done a lot with fire. Uh, the next morning, if you go back to a good-sized fire, it still may be smoldering, or there may be no smoke at all. But if you carefully, oh so gently, root through the ash you can find one little thing called an ember. An ember is the last living part of the fire you enjoyed the night before. Now, we all know if you've done fires before that if you are oh so careful, the smallest ember, if you put fuel around it and blow on it, can become a larger fire than it was the night before. But if suddenly you blow too hard or you step on it or sneeze or there's wind... It can wipe the ember right out. I want that image to be, no pun intended, burned in your mind today. This is a significant, significant image. Because the idea of an ember and the possibility of profound new fire or complete death is the image that we have about the church in Sardis. Welcome to week six, and I'll still call it our pre-summer series out of the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, a hard copy or virtually, we'd love you to turn there. And by the way, I just want to say this, since I got a Facebook post this week, for you who also have tablets and Androids, you can use that technology too to turn your scriptures. Okay. Some people are like, you didn't say Android. Yes, because iPhones are better. Deal with it. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. So we've been walking through... We've been walking through the first three chapters as Jesus comes and speaks to the original audience of the book of Revelation. So many of you have been saying to me how interesting it's been for you to hear that there was an original audience. The book of Revelation isn't just some crazy, mysterious book, but the people who got it understood it. It was there to give them encouragement, help them to keep going through persecution. And of course, the book of Revelation is a great gift to the church universal because it reminds us that Jesus is coming back and he wins. The first city and church we looked at was Ephesus. 
Jesus came and said it was a profoundly truthful, orthodox church, but it had no love left for Jesus, let alone anyone else. Smyrna was being persecuted, and Jesus told them it was going to get worse, but told them to have great joy. Pergamum was given praise for standing up under terrible persecution, but also at the same time rebuked for compromise. Thyatira, we were there last week, was loving and growing in their discipleship, but they had a wrong version of capital T tolerance, and Jesus said, you're more tolerant than even I am, repent. But now we come to Sardis. And like we've been finding out week after week, what you know is going on in the city will help you understand what Jesus is about to say. Let's start with some background to the city. It once was the capital city of the kingdom of Lydia. And in its day, it was rich, it was powerful, and it was pristine. But at this time, by John's period, the glory is long gone. The people at this moment were resting on their past reputation, but its fame was more illusion than reality. By Romans' time, it really had become one word, a relic. It's 50 miles east of Ephesus, 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It's situated at a junction between five key roads on what they call the King's Highway. It was an active commercial city, and at this point during John's period, it's known for making clothing. It's rumored actually to be the place in ancient times they discovered the art of dyeing wool. We take that for granted. We all have multiple colors today sitting here or online in our clothing. These are the people that discovered the idea of how to do that in that time. Much of the city and the fortress was built on a hill so very steep that they thought they were absolutely powerful. It was built on a mountain called Mount Timlos, and it overlooked the fertile plains of Hermas. The Acropolis, or the capital, or the citadel, was built upon sheer rock, rising 1,500 feet above the lower valley. This was, at their time, the military fame to claim. And for this city, and like the people of fabled Troy before them, They thought they could never, ever be conquered because of the natural fortifications. They would say, you can never scale our mountain or ever deal with our walls. So you can't touch us. Like all people in all nations that are not vigilant, whose root is pride, they all fall. And history teaches us that this city did twice. In 546 BC, it fell to the great King Cyrus of Persia and became the governor's seat for that empire. They overcame the city by sending up climbers over the wall into the fortress. The second time it fell amazingly, ready? The exact same way. Hundreds of years later, in other words, they did not learn from their first mistake. The second fall was much more movie-esque. It would make a great AMC experience. A Cretan named Ligorius took 15 men sorry, up the 1,500 feet cliffs, and they did it at night with no modern climbing equipment that we have today. They climbed up over those cliffs and then over the walls, climbed into the city at the dead of night and opened the gates from the inside and their army rushed in and destroyed the city. Two times this city was so confident of their security, they never, ready? They never set up night guards on the highest points of the city. They were not, here's the key word, vigilant. They were so overconfident that they said, We don't need to watch. You'll know why that matters in a few minutes. A last bit of history that relates to what Jesus is about to say happens in 17 AD. There was a huge earthquake that devastated this beautiful city. It was rebuilt by the emperor Tiberius at the time, but it needed assistance long term to survive. In other words, this city metaphorically was on life support for years. Religiously, the city worshipped a god named Sybil, a goddess, 
which was connected to the Greek god Artemis. And they believed she had the power to rise people from the dead. That's important too. At this time, it also had a large, large Jewish population. Archaeologists actually have just discovered that one of the largest synagogues in antiquity was found here. It is the length of a modern American football field. So what we should expect if you've joined us so far as this. A huge Jewish community, the Roman government, the worshiping of Sybil. We should expect a showdown. Lots of things to go wrong between Christians and these three groups. Persecution, maybe slander, torture, imprisonment. Maybe there's even death of Christians already. But if you read the six little verses that we're going to today, it's not there at all. There's no persecution at all. So we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, well, what's the deal? It's happened in every other city up to this point. Here's the answer. These Christians had grown so very comfortable and friendly with the world that there was no hostility at all. They had not chosen the path of compromise, not even the path of tolerance. They had chosen the path of least resistance. And here's the scary thing. They don't even really know it's happened to them yet. Jesus comes and he speaks to this congregation and he chooses the strongest part of his personhood, the strongest part of that initial revelation in Revelation 1 to speak to this church. These images, if you don't understand them, drive home one thing. Jesus' lordship. Jesus is showing up to a church gathered just like us and is declaring to Christians in Sardis that he is the master of the church. He owns every person that belongs to that church and he's going to remind all of us sitting here and watching today he is the king of the universe. Revelation 3.1 reads like this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit, who also himself is God. It comes out of Isaiah 11:2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Not only does he hold the Holy Spirit in one of his hands, in the other he holds the seven stars which represent the churches. They are both under him, and they are called to represent him. That is why in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. And that is why in Scripture, every church and the global church declares that there is one head, and his name is Jesus. Jesus comes and says, I am master, I am Lord, I am king, I am all-powerful. He comes to his own house, but he does not come to talk. He comes to give terms. Now, in this case this morning... This church is different than all the others we've explored so far. Truly, this is one, this, as one said, is sort of like a reclamation project. You ever watch one of those shows, like Sell This House? You know what I'm talking about, those home interior shows? Where the people are totally befuddled, that they, they don't understand why they can't sell their house. So they set up video cameras in the house. Have you seen this? And people walk through, and since they don't know someone's watching, they say what they really think. This is the ugliest house I've ever seen. Right? You hear this. Do these people have no sense of fashion? You know, you can hear it on and on. And then later in the show, of course, they open the laptop and the people sit around and they get to watch people insult them for hours. It's wonderful. And we all laugh. Ha ha, that's not my house. Really? Well, uh. See, this is the point of that show. They can't sell their house because they are blind. 
They think they're awesome. They're amazing. Their house is beautiful. They have no understanding of their own situation. And so someone else has to come in and tell them honestly, truthfully, the reality of why they can't sell their home. And after the truth has been embraced, if it is, then they change the home and the goal is to sell the house. That is exactly what's happening spiritually to the church in Sardis. Jesus is coming to deal with one of the most deadly sins. Unknownness, blindness, self-deception by Christians. So serious is this problem that Jesus himself breaks the pattern he's been following church after church. He always, church after church, starts with encouragement, then rebuke if needed, and then promise. But here there is no well done. There's no I'm so pleased to hang out with you. There's no you make me so joyful. He comes to his church in fullness of power and calls this church one thing. You are the living dead. So content are you with mediocrity that you don't even know that you need divine intervention. You need revitalization. You need the lordship of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to so sweep through the church before it's too late and your ember is snuffed out. And I come and I take your lampstand. He says in verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Jesus says those two words, I know. Like I said a few weeks ago, Jesus comes to them and Jesus comes to us this morning and says, I know. I know for real. I know more than you know. Sin does not affect me. Self-deception has never been my experience. People-pleasing is never my problem. Nothing obstructs me or blinds me. So let me tell you from heaven's view, in holiness and in love, the truth about you, the truth about your family, the truth about your children. Hear me speak. You've invested so much in your reputation, but not into what counts, the reality between you and I. Just like your city that once was amazing and wealthy and powerful, but now is not. So the same with your church. Your city keeps calling on history to make you feel okay about who you are. But here's the truth. That is what you were. You have a great facade as a city. You talk a good game and you appear appear okay. But you know the truth and so do I. Your glory is gone, your city is weak, your history is about to run out. And then Jesus shows up and says, by the way, your city's experience is you spiritually. You've established a name for yourself among your family and friends in the city. But from God's view, you have not measured up. You have accommodated so much. You are so friendly with culture. Tolerance has become so powerful that Jesus and scripture are weak among you. And I just can't tell the difference anymore. Jesus really shows up and says these words. Are you my children? Because I can't tell if you are. This is what we call nominal Christianity. It was the great author and scholar George Ladd who penned these words. The church was noted for its good works. Listen carefully, please. Which by people's standards were praiseworthy. But from God's viewpoint stood condemned because they were imperfect. They were incomplete, actually inadequate. The church was not troubled by persecution. It was not disturbed by heresy. It was not fighting with the Jewish opposition. It was, here it is, well known for its active, vigorous congregation, characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all these religious activities were a failure because they were formal and external. They were not infused with the life-giving Holy Spirit. Here is a perfect example of a purely nominal Christianity, which in all of its 
outward and formal aspects is outstanding, but in the sight of God is a complete failure. Jesus says, you consider yourself alive and well, but you are at the point of death. You're in shock. You're having a heart attack right now, and you think you're just fine. The truth is, from heaven's view, you're in trouble. You appear to be alive, but you're dead. Verse 2, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and that what is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. In Greek, the word wake up is translated be watchful, be spiritually vigilant. This is so important. If you do not listen, it will be so very costly. This again is a direct reference to the city's history. Every person hearing this read would know this. Wake up. Your city was not vigilant and you lost everything. So the same here. Just as your supposed city was never able to be defeated and was, so the same about you. Your city was destroyed twice because of arrogance and blindness. Because you decided not to be vigilant and be watchful. And then he says, but I remind you this morning that it is not some human king coming. I am coming and I am God. Strengthen. It's like that ember. It's the only thing left from that former fire that was beautiful, powerful, life-giving. Now it can erupt again into a greater fire or it can be snuffed out. I have not found your deeds complete. You as Christians are resisting the Holy Spirit's real work, his character, his calling to be like Jesus, his personal callings to you among you. Remember, he says, verse 3, therefore what you've received and heard, obey it and repent. If you're a highlighting person or a note taker, virtual or electronic or or physical, highlight this verse. This verse in one one sentence is the summary of what what happens just before a revival, for real. It's a three-step thing. It's simple. Remember, obey, repent. Bear this in mind, he says, remember. You that know Jesus, you that, are, you that know what you're called to do, you that have received and heard the word of God, you know what a Christian is called to do. All of us are called to do many things personally, but if you forget, just go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Just go look at the Ten Commandments. Remember them. For others among us, Jesus has spoken very clearly to you personally. Through scripture or songs or prophecy or word of knowledge. He has called you to do something and you've said no because of fear or or pride. And Jesus says, remember. Once you've remembered, like the book of James says, don't just hear. Do. Obey. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, live a normal Christian life, not a nominal Christian life. Rod Wilson, who used to be the senior pastor at Forestbrook, now the president of Regent, used to say, Jesus did not call us to decision but called us to discipleship. What he was saying is, we can make a hundred decisions, but never follow through. We need disciples in our movement, not people who raise their hands and do nothing about it. In other words, don't just hear. Obey. And how do you know that you are obeying? Jesus says, repent. This is an urgent call. Repentance means doing a 180, but really at its heart, ready? It means change your mind. You know that we live out of what we believe, right? Every one of us sitting here, Christian or not, we live our life out of what we believe is okay or not okay. See, life change starts when our thinking is changed. That's why one person said the renewal of the Holy Spirit does not occur occur in a vacuum. The intended revival occurs when the book they have received, the book of Revelation, is heard, obeyed, and it causes repentance. 
That's why Paul in Romans 12 said these things in verse 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but, by the transform, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Revival begins when you change your thinking, and you have to change your thinking by obedience, and obedience is connected to remembering what God has said. Jesus shows up and says, do this, and there will be great joy, great freedom, and profound fire. But if you do not, if you keep on keeping on, if you keep thinking there is more time, if you keep thinking that Jesus is going to show up and do a new profound thing in you or your family or this church, but there is no change, you're wrong. Verse 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Again, history would come home to that original audience. Just like their city fell twice by those that snuck in at night like a thief. So Jesus says, I will come unexpectedly if you do not wake up and you do not become watchful. Jesus used the same metaphoric language in Matthew 24 about the end of time. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the night of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready, because the Son of Man, Jesus, will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now I just want to stop and remind all of us listening here this morning that both of these passages are spoken to followers of Jesus. Is this talking about losing salvation? No, I don't buy into that. I think this is saying that many of us live like Jesus is not really coming back. That we will not give an account. And when he does show up in profound glory and power, there will also be weeping among Christians for a period because we will realize how much we have squandered. It says in verse 4, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They'll walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. There are some among you, he says, a small group that really do walk with me. They really love me and they're worthy. Now again, the city's history comes into play. This city was known for clothing and and everyone would know the result of dirty clothing. No one who produces clothing likes to see dung or urine or wine or dirt on clothing, right? We all get this. None of us like this. But there's a deeper thing. In ancient Turkey at this time, if you came to worship any deity at any moment, and you had dirty clothing, you were disbarred from worshiping because it was a disservice to the deity. It's like you as a Christian. See, clothing doesn't matter to our movement. It's our heart that matters. It's like us as Christians walking up to Jesus, and our Christian life could be a, you could, whatever you think in your mind, a beautiful suit or a a nice dress or whatever you like wearing that you consider nice. And it's like walking up to Jesus metaphorically and saying, I'm so glad to be with you. And he's like, wow, have you seen your clothing? You're like, no, it's amazing. He's like, no, it's really covered in dirt and dung. He's like, no, no, it's fine. And Jesus is like, really? Are you joking me? Really? Because it's not that way. What does dressed in white mean? I don't think, by the way, when we get to heaven, we're all going to run around in white robes. I don't think so. I know that's the image used. Here's what I think. Is it right thinking? Yes. Is it right living? Yes. But I think at its heart, it's an old word. It means to be justified. 
The white robe symbolizes being in right relationship with God. Those who have implicitly trusted in the work of Jesus, by the power of Jesus alone in their life. They don't trust in anything else. They are in right standing with Christ. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. When we read scripture, we actually read it. But back then, scripture was read. So every church would be hearing everyone else's Facebook posts. You ever thought about that? Every person would have this read in their own congregation and would know what's going on in the other church. And everyone sitting in the local church would hear it read. So Jesus says these very difficult things. And then he says, but I'd still like to give you a promise. I'd like to give you a threefold promise that if you would blow on that ember, it will give you hope and great joy. But the opportunity is yours. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name out of the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before the Father and his angels. He says, number one, you are going to be in right standing forever before the living God. You will be dressed in white. The justifying act of Jesus will perpetuate itself forever in eternity. Promise one. Promise two, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Now this is very significant for us this morning to get this. Very important. Because if we miss this, we're going to miss the heartbeat of what he's talking about. He says, to those who overcome, they get these three things. Now, Jesus, in almost every single point in this, in this passage, talks about overcoming. Implicit is this. Only those who persevere, only those who overcome will be dressed in white. Only those who persevere, they actually will not have their name blotted out. And only those who overcome, they will be acknowledged by Jesus. But if you do not overcome, you will not have this experience. Now, is this saying you can lose your salvation? Christians disagree. I personally, when I read the whole counsel of God, say, no, I don't agree with that. But I love one pastor's thoughts when he wrote these things. He says, the implicit warning of 3.5, that those who do not overcome will be blotted out of the book of life, challenges all of us as Christians. One group of Christians called Arminians teach that if you aren't faithful to Jesus, it reverses the results of your conversion. Others, named Calvinists, that's, I'm one of them, teach that people who fail to persevere never knew Jesus in the first place. But no matter where you fall on the grand debate that has existed since 95 AD, this is what's most important, he writes. Everyone agrees on the end result. Those who do not persevere are lost. He says, this author, many, especially in my Baptist tradition, have wrongly interpreted the Bible to teach that if you said a prayer once, you're fine and you're in. But that is refuted here and through all of Scripture. Just because you said a prayer when you were three, just because you've gone to church, just because you say you're a Christian, if there is no fruit of faith, if you do not persevere, this will not be your experience. Jesus is clear. If you persevere, you have eternal life. If you do not persevere, you do not have eternal life. Will you struggle in your faith? Deeply. Will you fail many times? Yes. Peter rejected Jesus multiple times, but he persevered to the end. He says, but if you do, white robes are given to you, and I will not take your name out of the book of life. Now, the book of life appears in the Bible for the first time in Exodus. Moses is standing between the living God of heaven and earth and the people who've committed horrific sins and he is literally interceding between heaven and earth and he looks at the living God of heaven and earth and says, I know my people have sinned so terribly and actually they're your people, so guess what? You know what? Have mercy on them 
and blot my name out of the book of life. That's the first time we see it. Later in secular history, even in Turkish times at this moment in Asia Minor, there was ledgers for society. If you were declared a criminal, your name was blotted out of the book and you lost your citizenship. The book of life in Scripture, if you read it from beginning to end, is the book that contains all of those that truly know the living God of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ alone. It's very clear in Revelation 20.12, I saw the dead, great and small, this is the last judgment, standing before the thrones, and the books, plural, were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were adjudged according to what was done as recorded in the books. There is a book for those who have not trusted in Jesus and truly know him, and those that do. Jesus promises this dying church these words. If you persevere and you truly know me, you will be justified. If you persevere and you truly know me, your name will be in the book of life forever. And then he says this. Then he says this. I will vouch for you. I want want the gravity of this conversation now to come into this room. Jesus declares that on judgment day, if we truly know him, and trust in him alone. He will look at God the Father and the billions or trillions of angels and will declare, this person is mine. He warned about this in Luke 12, 8. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. When I die, I'm speaking me, John Thompson, I am not going to face God and say, but God... Didn't you know who I was? I was a pastor. God, I had three degrees. Or or, God, I worked in a church. Didn't you know that I had the title reverend? I preached. I cast out demons. I had three kids. I loved my wife. I was. You fill in the blank. Do you think any of that matters? Zero. The only thing I want declared is this. That Jesus looks at me and says, he's mine. There are no priests, there are no popes, there are no bishops, there are no pastors in heaven. We all come at a level standing and Jesus, Jesus will either say because he is trusted, yes or no. There is nothing more important than the acknowledgement of Jesus because he holds life and death in his hands. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Can you imagine Jesus coming to you tonight? Or coming to us as a church and saying, Sardis is you. This would shatter for many of us what we really think is happening. Like a doctor showing up and saying, I, I know you think you're healthy, but you have cancer. You have full-blown AIDS. You, you think you have weeks or months or, or years or decades. No, you've got two days, period. You, you cannot keep living the same. Everything changes right now. You can't hesitate and you cannot ignore. Act or all is lost. As one wrote, Sardis has become the embodiment of inoffensive Christianity. It has no power left as a church, and here's why. It has lost its center. What is the center of any church that loves Jesus? Anglican, Baptist, Pentecostal, Brethren, Alliance, you fill in the blank. Here it is. The center of a church is a deep love for Jesus, a deep acknowledgement of our slavery to Jesus, that's obedience, and the power of the Holy Spirit. This church did not love Jesus, did not acknowledge slavery to Jesus and had no power because they weren't interested in living a radically different life. There was no persecution. 
There was no battle between Caesar and the church. There was no battle between them and the idols of their time. They were not at odds with the Jewish community over Jesus' claim of being the Messiah because they were deeply introspective, believing the lie that they were alive, that they were awake, that the world was good and Jesus was okay with them and everything was okay and it just was not true. They, like their city, all beautiful on the outside, was bankrupt in bondage to history and living like there was no problem at all. Now, am I saying that C4 Church, C4, worse artists? No, I'm not declaring that. But the call for us is just as strong. This church was walking in reputation, but not power. They were living on past achievements, not what Jesus was asking today. They were looking at a past fire, and only an ember was left. So the question I pose to you that I pose to myself for the last seven days is this. What is the spirit of Jesus himself saying to you at this moment? What is he saying to us? Well, this is when you don't disconnect from what I'm about to say. Here's the first application. The church in Sardis is the call for nominal Christianity to die. Hear this closely, please. This is the call for nominal Christianity to die. You cannot be a Christian in name only. Because your parents are Christians does not make you a Christian. Just because you come from a culture that is supposedly Christian because you're not Islamic or you're not Buddhist or you're not Baha'i or you're not involved in Wicca or whatever you want to fill in, so I suppose I'm a Christian. No, that's not Christianity. It's all or nothing. Let me say this three times. God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Every generation has to make the decision either to follow Jesus or reject him. You have to willingly repent of sin and put your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. You cannot be a Christian in name only. It's not good enough even to give intellectual assent to the Christian idea or go to worship services or serve in a church. You must truly know Jesus. You must truly love Jesus. One wrote, a Christian, a true one, is one who has responded in personal repentance and faith to Jesus as Savior and Lord. But then they add, and God's word reveals that that person who is a Christian, in addition to having made a commitment to Jesus, will reveal a lifestyle that is in contrast to the natural, unconnected person to Jesus. If your life does not look any different from those who are good around you who do not know Jesus, there is a chance you are not a Christian. Mickey Cohen, a famous Los Angeles gangster in the late 40s. just want to say this. We're not talking about hip-hop culture, okay? The original gangsters, not the new ones. In the 1940s, made a public confession. I'll have to clarify that tonight extensively at the Young Adult Service. Made a public confession of faith in Jesus. His Christian friends, true story, were elated but as time passed, they began to wonder why he didn't leave his gangster lifestyle. I mean, this guy's like Al Capone. When they confronted him concerning the question, he protested. You never told me I had to give up my career. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars and Christian athletes and Christian business people. So what's the, what's the problem with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give all of that up, if that's what Christianity truly is, ready? Count me out. Cohen gradually drifted away from Christian circles and ultimately died lonely and forgotten. It was Chuck Colson who just died, a man who understands the difference between life and death, who just noted these words about Cohen. 
Cohen was echoing the millions of professing Christians who, though unwilling to admit it, through their very lives posed the same question. Not about being Christian gangsters. Ready? Everyone lean in. But about being Christianized versions of whatever they already are, and they are determined to remain. Being a Christianized version of what you were or are, and you are determined to remain. You have the veneer of Jesus. You come to church. You're in this. Sure, sure, you're in a connect group. Fine. But you are determined to remain the person you are without change because you like it. Is that you? Are you a Christian version of who you were or who you are, and you are determined to remain and not see Jesus profoundly, radically change you? I don't care if you're 80, 16, 3, or 12. It's the same question. Jesus comes this morning and says, repent. Strengthen what remains, or you are truly lost. So I'm just going to do this. I don't usually do this. I'm a fast preacher. I'm going to let this sit. Are you this person? Wrestle with this. Heaven, hell, and eternity sit in this moment. Nominal Christianity is an idol. It's a plague on our house because it's not the real movement. Some of you are saying, I don't think that's me. Good. Here's the second thing we learned from Sardis. You cannot live on your past achievements or your past reputation and not live in power. For any of us, and again, this is not a generational statement, for any Christian who's the real deal, to rely on what they did in God's history is wrong. God will honor what you've done, and he will bless you, but you cannot live in bondage to your history and what you did in his name historically. Paul said it best in Philippians 3. Remember, we talked about this. He's at the end of his life. And he, if anyone had the right to live in his history, not his pre-Christian history, his history, he had the right to say, I have the right to retire now. I have the right to get angry at what God's doing now because guess what? Look at all the stuff I did. And he says these three, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards what is ahead. We need to be watchful and awake what the Spirit is saying today. There is no room for retirement in our movement. There is no room for letting history have more power than what Jesus is doing today. Scripture continually teaches us there are seasons. And these seasons must be respected because they are an outworking of His sovereignty. The greatest damage done in the church is when people of any age, any age, I've seen teenagers do this, Live in what God did and never move on to what God is doing. Be watchful, Jesus says, because your ember may be snuffed out. Some of you are realizing that you are a nominal Christian, which means you've never encountered him. Others of you have realized that you are resisting the living Jesus working in today. But the great question I have to leave, which is a difficult one, is this. Can it be possible to think you're okay with Jesus as a real Christian and not be okay? Is it possible to think that you're doing really well in your walk for your whole connect group or your ministry or even a whole church, and you're not doing well? The answer is yes. That is why I've been wrestling with you as one of your pastors to be open to what the Spirit of God is trying to say to this church.
to ask him, ask him clearly what is going on. Jesus, speak truth into our life. Would you be willing this week, today, at this moment, to ask, Jesus, am I Sardis? Do you love Jesus enough to ask him, and do you trust Jesus enough for him to move if you are? In a book, A God-Sized Vision, one person wrote, the only hope for those with dead indifference as real Christians is being brought back to life by the giver of life. The word revive in the NIV is the word renew. It comes from Habakkuk 3.2. And it comes from an old Hebrew word that means to be brought back to life. Habakkuk 3.2 says, Lord, we have heard of your fame. Notice, past tense. I stand in awe of your deeds. Past tense. O Lord, renew them in our day. Present tense. In our day, in our time, make them known. Present tense. And in wrath, remember mercy. This is the great call of people of God, the people of God to say, no matter the cost, no matter the cost, for your glory, for my freedom, for the world to see Jesus clearly, come if I have become like Sardis, and in your love and in your truth, expose me to my core so I can have life again, that I can be renewed and revived again, be free of things I'm struggling with, and so I can see Jesus clearly in this moment. And you will know that begins to take place when you have joy again, hope again, when you begin to serve with a new vigor again, when you start to love scripture again, when you start weeping over the lost again, when you start letting money go to the side and sex go to the side and power go to the side. They all get in the right positions. You start reconciling with other Christians you don't like. You start having profound conversations with Jesus and you start living like this. 2 Corinthians 5.9 I make it my goal to please him whether at home in the body or away from it, because I know I must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that I will receive what is due me when the things I've done in my body, whether good and bad. Revival comes home to a local community when Jesus shows up, tells us the truth, and we truly start living like we're going to give an account. That is when you know it has moved from smoke and mirrors and hype to reality. Jesus comes and says to a church, I remind you, out of great love, with the goal of joy, I want to tell you the truth because I want to blow on that ember and produce such a fire that would change the world. The question is, will you let me do it? As Nick, Nikki and the team come up and we prepare for response, let's take a moment to pray. This is going to take some time in connect groups to process. But it's an important, important, difficult conversation from Scripture. So let's pray this way. Jesus, uh, we're all here, and my prayer is simple. I would ask you, Holy Spirit, uh, for all of us here and those online, not one person to experience anything that is not directed towards them. I pray for godly sorrow that will lead to repentance in life for those who need it. I pray those who are walking in white already and are doing well would be told yes. Lord, for many that said that's not me, I pray if it is them, you'd go back and say, you said that too quickly. Lord, just I pray that you would work. I pray that certain people among us right now that are nominal Christians who have never met you for real would repent. And if that's you, just pray this right now. I'm just going to take the moment. I know we're late, but just it's worth it. It's eternity. Just say, I am a nominal Christian. 
Jesus, I am a nominal Christian. I have never really known you. It is obvious my life has never reflected you. I've said a prayer, I've done, but I don't love you. I'm not committed to you. I'm not your slave. I want to meet you for real now. Bring everything that's been around me and make it real in me. I want to follow you, Jesus. I repent. For others who have been living in history, open your hands to Jesus. Literally, open your hands to Jesus and give up the history that you did in, in, and say, thank you for that. Help me to live in the now. Help me not to live in, in the past, but in the present. Not in reputation, but in power. And for other people, Lord, uh, just again, give us all the courage to ask, am I Sardis? And if, if you do say yes, in your love and in your joy and your truth, start setting us free. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion together in response. It's very suiting. So I'm going to ask you to stand uh, with me, uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus. Here's how we're going to respond. Communion, as I always say, is the symbol of Jesus' death, resurrection. In Scripture, it's very clear we're called to do this as believers. We join the global church as we do this. And this is for anyone who does know Jesus, struggling, doing well, not doing well. You're welcome to the tables. And servers, you can come forward and get ready. Uh, If you're running from Jesus, if you're saying, I am Sardis and I refuse to repent, don't take this. If you're not a Christian yet, don't take this because you've not embraced the one it it represents. For for anyone who is a Christian, uh, you're welcome to come and say to Jesus, uh, thank you. for your forgiveness. Thank you for speaking truth to me. Uh, some of you go, oh my goodness, I'm Sardis. Repent right at these tables and encounter him. Uh, for others of you, say thank you. I'm walking in white. Help me to keep going. But all of us confess our sins, connect with Christ. And also as we say all the time when we do come forward communion, this is a time we give above and beyond our usual giving to the poor, helping us to meet physical and emotional needs of people through food, through helping people in bad situations, even free counseling. And so we want you to give above and beyond in a generous way in each of these boxes so we can continue the mandate of Jesus to love the least among us. So let me pray for these elements and then come forward and you'll receive them as you feel ready. So Lord Jesus, thank you for your difficult word. May there be nothing I've said. If it has not been from you, may it fall to the ground. But we invite you to meet us at these communion tables. Help us to be generous. Help us to repent. Help us to find joy and be affirmed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.